Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David Paratus. Dr. Paratus is an expert in the history of medieval Europe, particularly England and the British Isles. He's a teaching professor of distinction in the Department of History at the University of Colorado, Boulder. This was a unique interview because I also spoke with a good portion of the students in a class he was teaching on blood feuds and violence in medieval England. This was an especially cool experience for me because I went to CU Boulder for my undergrad, and I actually took this course from Dr. Paratus while I was there. So, in this set of conversations, we discuss honor cultures and feuding in the early medieval world, wars of succession and conquest across the Middle Ages, the petty dramas of the English nobility, and all of the research projects that his students were working on. I want to apologize ahead of time for any jarring breaks in the audio quality that you hear. Uh, it was kind of unavoidable given the number of different settings that I recorded in. But I hope that you can still trace some really interesting historical themes through all of these conversations. So with that said, my name is Sebastian Weatherby, and this is The Tell. Anyway, uh, Dr. Pratis, uh, thanks for taking the time. Sure, it's my pleasure. I wanted to open by asking about why you would teach a course like this at all, because it's quite a particular topic within the realm of medieval history. Why do you like the topic of feuding and violence in medieval England? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, partly it's because violence is something that we still have to deal with today. Mm -hmm. And it's a relevant topic to studying the past and what can mm -hmm. we learn about the past, but also what can we learn about the human condition? Yeah, yeah. And, and how does violence escalate? And, and how can we, it, knowing how violence escalates, yeah. how can we short circuit that process and stop the escalation so that it doesn't go out of control and the value of knowing the darker side of human nature yeah in a sense this problem has has been part of the homo sapiens species before there was even a sapiens part of right, it right it's as close as i can think of to a biological uh, yeah. element of human behavior it, it almost has this sort of like um like a game theory kind of mm. tragedy to it mm. of of if you live in a society with no police and you want to make sure nobody steals your sheep, they need to know that if they do steal your sheep, you're going to come after them and hurt them. There's a cost and, to pay. Right. Yeah. And it's not and it's not merely for the sake of being mean or being violent, but it's a real necessity of not losing your food and dying over the winter or, or you know, uh, being subject to raiding parties or all sorts of things. Like there's a real unfortunate underlying utility. Absolutely. You know, if you look at the laws of Ethelbert of Kent, the oldest document in the English language, mm -hmm. it's a series of fines for various physical assaults. Right. So if you cut off someone's leg or arm or something like that, there's a certain amount of money stipulated for that. Right. It even goes down to uh, the smallest disfigurement of the face, which I... I assume would be like a black eye or something like right, that, but right. also broken, nose. Uh, broken nails, uh, you really? know, uh, fingernails broken. <laughs> so, you know, you got to ask, well, why is that? And the answer is partly, uh, you can't walk around in this society looking like you've been beat up 
without right, being able right. to say yeah. uh, that person had to pay for that, you know. Uh, and and so it's the same with stealing sheep. There, there's a, a, a cost. And so yeah. with the laws of Ethelbert of Kent, you have a king trying to insert himself into that process. Right. But what we're looking at in this class a lot is this is about society when there was no centralized state. And, right. and when individuals and kinship groups had to maintain their honor and, and their prestige. Right. And so like then, what did, what did the old sort of early medieval concept of reputation look like? Well, uh, it was highly gendered, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably class-based, uh, so there were certainly warriors mm-hmm. who were, let's say, the aristocracy, the people that did the raiding and plundering for a living, and then there were the peasants. And we don't know much about the peasants uh, yeah. because there's just a lack of, of sources from about them, I should say. Getting back to your question, I guess, it, it's the there were certain males that were called on to defend the prestige and honor of the family. It wasn't just individual prestige and honor. And the kinship group, the larger kinship group, and both sides of the family, both maternal and paternal, could be called into the conflict. And that's part of the reason that I assigned the Nyao Saga reading, as you can see how these conflicts start off with just very petty and minor things between a couple of individuals right. and gradually become bigger until it breaks into what would be the equivalent of a civil war in Iceland. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, Well, in going to Iceland, um, your, uh, I remember from taking the course that a, a big chunk of the early course is uh, caught up in discussing Njal Saga mm. in particular. And uh, I had a quote about Njal Saga from the Penguin Books edition. Um, okay. And, the, the introduction, it's, uh, The Iceland of Njal's saga is alive with talk and pregnant with proof of the power of words. Unfortunately for the decent people of the saga, much of the talk is lies, and in particular, slanderous lies about a man's effeminacy, which was inseparable from cowardice in the old Norse way of thinking. So it, 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 it definitely touches on this ability to do violence, but then on, on top of it, there definitely seems also to be this obsession with with uh, public statements, with trials, with debate, with pronouncing things about people. Oh yeah, uh, you know you, as the saga demonstrates only too well, an individual could kill another individual with impunity, if that individual had slandered the person seeking violence so so it was seen as an equivalent offense in a sense absolutely and 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 uh Yao couldn't grow a beard yeah and his enemies mocked him for that and and made jokes about him being basically a, a woman or yeah. at least womanish because of that yeah. and that was all that was needed to ignite widespread violence between families that had a long history of conflict between right, them. Right, yeah. I have a quote that I thought was really, really interesting. And I guess moving from reputation to then the next layer up of feuding more. Um, mm. uh, I had a quote from Michael Wallace Hadrill, who said, uh, feuds are like volcanoes. A few are in eruption, others are extinct, but most are content to rumble now and again and leave us guessing. I, I liked 
thinking with that analogy about feuding as almost like a, a natural force that as you move forward through through English history, for instance, from the early Middle Ages, yeah. you can kind of see it bubbling up again and again. Right. And the uh, one, one thing I'll say, just uh, sort of thinking about this a little more, is yeah. uh, one point that Fletcher makes at the end of his book is that between the 11th century and William the Conqueror and in England, you know, 1066 and that sort of thing. In the 12th century, under uh, Henry II of England, the uh-huh. 1170s, 1180s, when the common law comes in, mm-hmm. he sees a profound shift in the culture, moving away from feuding and and sort of, you know, to a, a, a state of, with laws. and Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying that uh, maybe we're trying to qualify that with this class in saying feuding didn't go away. One of the tendencies that students who take this class often embrace is that they feel like they got to throw the word feud <laughs> into their analysis of the past. And yeah, what I yeah. try to emphasize repeatedly is you don't need to use that word. There's a whole <laughs> cultural package here. Yeah. And it could be honor, it could be retribution, vengeance. There, there, there are all these elements to that feuding culture that we looked yeah. at. And how are those related to the continuation or escalation of small personal family conflicts? But they oftentimes involve members of royalty and right, nobility. Right. And so it brings the whole kingdom into civil war. And and, and going off of going off of that note, I, uh, I think it's time to bring in our first student guest, Jackson, who's going to talk about the uh, Norman conquest of England in 1066. So yeah, take it away. Uh, well, my name is Jackson, and uh, for my class research project, I focused on William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest of 1066. What I remember writing down in my notes from uh, watching your presentation was the question, what was the motivation behind mm-hmm. his conquest? Is that fair? Yeah, and why they risked so much to uh, claim the throne for yeah. themselves. He fought since his birth to defend his birthrights and his titles because he was the bastard of the previous Duke of Normandy. Um, and, and this conquest was, as I said, uh, an extension of, of that. What's the historical context for this first in terms of who is the throne being taken from and are there other pretenders? Yes, yeah, so the origins of the Norman conquest kind of started with um, Edward the Confessor's ascension to the throne. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, he was in exile in uh, Normandy with William. Um, when he finally attained the throne, he wished to pay back William by uh, pronouncing him his successor. Do you think? Do you think that almost could have been a bit of a stroke of bad luck, if if things had gone differently, to be named heir to a throne on an island your power base is not located on? Is there a way in which? being named heir comes with just more more trouble than it's worth? Yeah, I think that could be... And it depends on your own ambitions, though. Um, maybe for William it was something that he was grateful for, um, but at the same time I would say that it, it comes with a lot of responsibility that he, ha- he had to pursue. It wasn't something that he could 
right. really ignore. Yeah, could he? Do you think he could have chosen not to press the claim? What are the ramifications in terms of reputation? The ramifications, I would say, would be that his current title as the Duke of Normandy would be at stake. He, mm-hmm. As I said, he, he, he fought to keep his titles throughout his life because he was the, the bastard of the previous Duke of Normandy. Mm-hmm. His, his honor was always in question. If he didn't pursue the English crown, it would probably be seen as a moment of weakness uh, because Harold had promised an oath to uphold William as the next king of England, and yeah. by breaking that oath... Um, he hurt William's honor, mm-hmm. and so to he had to uphold it. He had yeah, to yeah. pursue some form of retribution. Uh, so let me let me let me turn this back to Doctor Paratus now uh, and ask. Well, well, do you do you agree with the idea that that uh, that it was a liability as much as a opportunity that it was? I do agree with that. I uh, I think that it was something. Kings in the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. dukes, leaders, had to, they felt a a cultural imperative. Mm -hmm. Real to to them, at least. Yeah. Uh, And and part of the reason for that cultural imperative is that if a king or a noble didn't protect his own assets, land, property, inheritance rights, if, if a king didn't do that, what was the likelihood that the king was going to protect his vassals Aha, inheritance rights. So this is that same kind of familial sort of factor almost. Like, if you're not willing to stand up for yourself, who are you to stand up for our herd or just for our safety? Exactly. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And so there is this sort of public element of doing something like embarking on the invasion of England with the audience being the rest of Norman aristocratic society. Right. Now, William faced a lot of opposition to the invasion of England from his Norman vassals, Yeah, at least at first, because it was going to be expensive. There was time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could die. Right. Uh, all sorts of things <laughs> yeah. involved. Uh, the, the Anglo-Saxons had a reputation militarily right. to be very right. formidable, and uh, he had to go out of his way to reinforce his claim uh, by uh, getting the Pope behind him mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, having the Pope claim that these Anglo-Saxons were destroying churches and, and putting in heretics. And, and you know, because he, when he traveled to England, he did carry the papal banner with him. Yeah. You know, that, that also seems to echo that quote from before that I read, the piece of it. Um, Unfortunately for the decent peoples of Njal Saga, much of the talk is lies, and in particular slanderous lies. That this is a, seems also to be a recurring theme. You know, if you want, if you want to justify violence towards a family, towards someone, you you first go and crow from the rooftops everything that's awful about them, and then that makes it okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess mean, <laughs> it it goes back to uh, Herman Goering's famous quote about how the common people never want war. And it's the leaders that have to tell them that the enemy is yeah. a bunch of Start bad the vilification yeah. process first. Exactly. Yeah. In some ways, it's it's the fictionalization of a, a petty uh, squabble or disagreement, and yeah. you got to blow that up, or they felt they had to blow that up yeah. into a, a really big cosmic struggle between good and evil, and and you know this has been going on and. 
warfare forever. Yeah. And I guess this moment is going to sort of presage many of the conflicts of the coming centuries because of the now the formation of this new family tie, right? The knitting together across the English Channel of these two regions. Absolutely. What we see over the next couple centuries leading towards our next student topic, which is uh, the myth of William Wallace. In the interim, we're seeing just sort of a, what would you say, a slow consolidation of power under the new, in the new dynastic era? Yeah, especially in the uh, period between 1154 and 1199, the, mm-hmm. the Angevin kings, they were from Anjou, mm-hmm. uh, descendants mm-hmm. of Geoffrey of Anjou, and uh, they very much strengthened the English state. They mm-hmm. conquered territory. They married wisely. Well, mm-hmm. Henry II married wisely. <laughs> Richard never married uh, Richard yeah. Lionheart. But they were great warriors uh, in, in uh, you know, skillful military commanders. If you, if you had your chops as a military commander, uh, God mm-hmm. must favor you. Right, right. Uh, There's sort of a, a might makes right element to the culture. You know, there was this ancient practice of the ordeal, trial by battle, yeah. uh, bilateral ordeal. And mm-hmm. in many ways, wars were seen as just a, an extension. Uh, an extension of that. Yeah. Idea. Let's uh, let's turn things over to Kylan and see what he has to say about the myth of William Wallace and how that ties into these these themes of of feuding and honor and saving face, everything that we've been talking about. So, uh, Kylan, take it away. Yeah, I'm Kylan, and yeah, I wrote on William Wallace. I was so going- first, uh, get us situated chronologically here. Um, so we just went from. Maybe one of the most well-known dates, I would think, in history, 1066. So generally, uh, the 11th century. Where are we now? So now we're at the end of the 13th century, going into the beginning of the 14th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the main reason I chose to study or do my studies on Wallace was because the glorification of him. I mean, everyone knows that when you see Braveheart, I mean, everyone's yeah, seen it. Everyone and, thinks of Braveheart. Yes, exactly. You think of Braveheart. And... It's hard not to feel pride even when you're watching that, even if you're not Scottish. And there's something about that that sort of speaks to everyone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just interested in that that sort of power that Wallace has mm-hmm. over everybody. But then when you sort of look into it, we don't know that much about him. And so that was sort of my motivation was understanding, okay, how come someone we know so little about came to be such a known figure for so many? So the sort of the creation of the myth of, mm-hmm. of uh, William Wallace. Yeah. What was that like in terms of research when you were trying to look into this? Yeah, so what's interesting is a lot of the contemporary work um, that's been done on Wallace or contemporary, meaning in the last hundred years, is sort of aimed at the same sort of goal as far as it's obvious that there's a lot of myth ascribed to the man. And so a lot of the work um, that's been done on him is trying to sort of filter out what is myth and what Mm -hmm. we can actually know. And like things that have collected over the centuries since Mm -hmm. the actual events. Yeah, and a lot of it's... um, oral folklore that has yeah. been passed down. Yeah. And so um, there's really no knowing where it even started or what, how it's changed over the, the centuries. What can we say, who, who was William Wallace? What can we fairly confidently say? Yeah, so just a quick setup. So after the King of Scotland died, um, the heir was a child and actually a woman, and then she died. Mm-hmm. And so there was this sort of um, vacuum created in the Scottish kingdom where 
there was a bunch of people competing, competing to become king, um, and they asked actually the king of England to arbitrate, and then that's when he sort of took his opportunity to say, no, I'm your rightful leader. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the setup for the first Scottish War of Independence. And then where we get to Wallace is actually at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. That's the first thing that I found um, attributed to him. And basically he was just sort of described as a particularly brutal warrior. Mm -hmm. um, he was described as essentially torturing one of the people he took, took a hold of. But the Chronicle really only gives mention to him in one sentence. And then later, as you said, um, his battle at Falkirk, he was actually in command and suffered a defeat and then was later captured and tortured. He was only involved in a few battles, right? Yes. Like in Falkirk, right, mm -hmm. being a famous defeat. Exactly. So how do you get someone who's only been involved in a few battles, one of which was a crushing defeat, becoming this heroic figure? Yeah, and that's what my research was mainly on, and what I found it to be was largely due to a man named Blind Harry, who wrote a poem on him. Blind Harry. Mm -hmm. yeah. He was a poet, um, and he wrote a poem during a time of sort of resurgence of Scottish nationalism um, in response to some of the, the policies of James III, um, I believe, who was a lot more accepting of the English than some of his predecessors. Mm -hmm. And so Harry created this poem focused on William Wallace and sort of described him as, as we know in Braveheart. Braveheart was actually based on his poem, sort of uh -huh. a bigger than life man. And obviously the people of Scotland loved it because it was someone they could look to during a time when they still didn't like the English, but their king was sort of siding with the English. So it just grew in popularity and was like the second most popular book in Scotland after the Bible. Wow. So I, I think it's time to turn this back to Dr. Paratus again, because I have a question about, about William Wallace based on what you've said. So uh, he, he's clearly, he clearly fits the mold of the kind of fighting man who you would expect to build a good reputation. But I, it makes sense in the frame of what we've been talking about so far, how William Wallace would get lionized as a brutal warrior. But if, if the battle we at least have record of in which he was commanding was a defeat, is there something almost a little subversive about lionizing the loser? Yeah, I guess it depends on who's doing the lionizing and what they're doing the lionizing for. Yeah. You know, the Wallace legend was written by a poet who has the name of Blind Harry. Mm -hmm. and, and Blind Harry was writing about 170 years after Wallace was killed. Yeah, Most of, of the Scottish view of mm -hmm. William Wallace comes from the late 1400s when England was once again trying yeah. to yeah. assert its control over Scotland. Mm -hmm. And Blind Harry's legend was partly to stir Scottish nationalism, if you want to use that word, patriotism, collective mm -hmm. identity, uh, in opposition to English hegemony. And there is an element of vengeance here, and that is that, according to Blind Harry, the sheriff, the English sheriff of Lanark uh, in Scotland had uh, killed Wallace's beloved, Marion uh -huh, Bradfoot, yeah. or Braidfoot, I'm not sure exactly how to say it. And, and Wallace sought vengeance against the English for killing his beloved. So this was a, a man who was feeling uh, something more than just patriotic spirit. That was certainly part Right, there of is it. also a personal yeah. vendetta element going on here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as that escalates then, and he 
scalps an Englishman or whatever he exactly did. I think he flayed someone. That then reflects on Edward I, Longshanks, uh, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. a poor commander, weak ruler, whatever you want to mm -hmm. say His there. His followers are going to end up in a situation like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and he seeks vengeance against Wallace, not only by defeating him at Falkirk, but also eventually uh, getting the members of the Scottish aristocracy to help him find Wallace, capture Wallace, uh -huh. bring him back to London, and publicly execute him in a yeah. vile um, manner. Yeah, yeah. So there, and, and you know, I'm always fascinated with violence that is a public spectacle, where yeah, they yeah. put heads on poles yeah. or you know, uh, slowly kill someone and make sure that they have a terrible experience dying and, and right. Make sure you send a message. Yeah, with the death. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so that's part of what. The Wallace episode is related to and yeah, yeah, and the way I view it. We're going to jump ahead again now and speak with another student, this time on the topic of the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War from the perspective of Edward III, the grandson of Edward I, Edward Longshanks, who actually we just discussed. And I think there's cool ways that this echoes the earlier topic of the Norman invasion of England. But let's, uh, without further ado, turn to Chase. Um, I'm Chase, and I did the onset of the Hundred Years' War and Edward III. I guess to start with, um, could you get us situated again chronologically? Because we're doing this big arc through time in English history, mm -hmm. um, I guess British. Uh, yeah, so uh, in my paper, uh, I started with... Uh, it kind of, like, while the war started in uh, 1337, mm -hmm. uh, a big part of my paper was that it dated back a lot earlier, uh, like the reasons for the war. Mm -hmm. And some people have even gone as far to say as it was more of a 200 years war, mm -hmm. uh, based on what I've read. But England acquired a um, bunch of land in South France. And the most important part of that was the acquisition of the territory of Gascony, mm -hmm. which is in South France uh, around... Aquitaine. There were lots of peace treaties, the most important one being the Treaty of Paris in mm -hmm. 1259, where they officially started doing the ritual of homage. So every time a new English king came mm -hmm. onto the throne, he had to pay homage to the French king that was on the throne. And the English kings really didn't like this. They felt like yeah, they were so. sacrificing their honor. Yeah. So that caused a lot of problems. And a bunch of other stuff happened between... Um, the, throne, the French throne going vacant in 1320s. Philip of Valois was named Philip VI. Um, Edward III was pretty pissed because uh, he was the more direct relative. And uh -huh. uh, then Philip VI claimed Gascony as his own in 1337. Uh -huh. And uh, can I ask what it was like finding sources for this, where you turned to? Uh, I got a lot of my information from the True Chronicles of uh, Jean Lebel, mm -hmm. which is a primary source chronicle from before the Hundred Years' War and then during it and after. But Jean Lebel, he was a knight in Edward III's camp, so he followed Edward III around through pretty much the whole war and the beginning of the war and just kind of wrote down what he saw. And oh, so heard, this is less of a, like, 
state-sponsored or like monarch-sponsored yeah. account. This was more of a like passion project because yeah. Jean Lavelle was a huge like well, he was recorded as being a huge fan of chivalry and he loved like the sort of splendor of battle like knights on horses <laughs> and shining armor stuff like that. He just liked chivalry a lot. I mean, in terms of medieval chroniclers, he's like about as neutral as he gets and he was still extremely biased and also wrong on a lot of accounts. That's what I liked about this version is it had corrections for his accounts. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's very evident through the book that Edward III is um, very concerned about his honor mm -hmm. and the slight to his honor that was not claiming his inheritance of France. Mm -hmm. And then after paying homage for Gascony, getting it taken by his like sort of enemy, like, yeah. Him and Philip VI just did not get along. He was like known for chivalry too. That yeah. was his thing. Uh, and in this book, they have a lot of instances of him like kind of bantering with his knights, sort of. Like they were going to execute some prisoners yeah. uh, they had taken during, I think it was the Battle of uh, Calais. Mm -hmm. And the prisoners had cooperated and given them information about the French tactics. And the knights were like, don't execute these guys. They gave us yeah. what they wanted. That's dishonorable. And Edward III yeah. actually listened, which is like huh. crazy for a medieval king to listen to knights. Yeah. So I think he definitely did care a lot about his image and his relation, like his comparisons to King Arthur. Mm -hmm. uh, so turning back to you, Dr. Paratus, there's a few things about this I wanted to ask you about. He touches on the system of homage. Yes. And I was really curious to hear a little more about how that began and what that would have meant to an English king um, to have to take part in it. Yeah, I have not studied that ritual in as much depth as I yeah. probably should in order to to address that. But clearly it's a an act of subservience right, by one a... party yeah, it's a lowering yeah. in relation to the French king. And, uh, and you know, that becomes particularly problematic for English kings when they control quite a bit of what we think of as France. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah. and, you know, so they're, they're, they're probably not as wealthy and they don't have as many subjects and they can't field as many knights or they couldn't field as many knights mm -hmm. as, as the French king. But they saw themselves, nevertheless, as roughly peers of one yeah. another. And, yeah. and so it had to create some stress. And how does this fit in, in your mind, with the broader arc of English history? Um, the key thing to focus on here is the fact that Edward III was in a very similar situation as the one we talked about earlier with William the Conqueror. Yeah, that's that's he, definitely what I thought of okay. for it. It's yeah. Like this sort of a young king with like almost a chip on their shoulder in the sense of needing to build up their reputation. And he had a legitimate claim to the French mm -hmm. throne. And uh, it was essentially stolen from him by so the... So you have a slight. Yes. And the rules here were not crystal clear, but yeah. he had every bit as close to a right of inheritance to the French throne as the, the person that got it, Philip of Valois. Yeah. And, and so there was this inheritance dispute, essentially. Mm -hmm. And 
there were other factors to be sure. There were trade, alliances, other things, but there was also just this matter of, are you going to fight for your inheritance right? Or are you going to roll over and let someone yeah. take what's yours yeah. from you? Because your nobles are watching. And if you don't protect your own land, you're probably not going to protect theirs either. There's a funny kind of unpleasant poetry to it, not just of how similar that scenario is to William the Conqueror's, but also uh, <laughs> has a, a, a young nobleman going one way across the English Channel yeah. to pursue that kind of crime, yeah. and then another one following three centuries later. But going the opposite direction in pursuit of the same kind of claim. And, and by the way, just going back to Nyao's saga for a minute, because yeah. in, in the saga... There are a couple of different moments where characters have to protect their inheritance. Mm -hmm. Both Hurut and Gunnar uh, in, in Yao Saga have to suspend what they're doing to protect their property. Yeah. And, and, and uh, in particular, uh, in the case of Hurut, his inheritance, uh, when, when one of his family members died, he had a claim to some ships and some goods and mm -hmm. um, some land, and he had to go do that, and it it disrupted his other plans. But he, when he was successful in doing it, mm -hmm. the saga says, and he gained much honor. Um, right, so, right. Uh, protecting your property was a vehicle for establishing your chops or your honor. Yeah, yeah and I imagine like one of the core purposes of that system, in a sense. Yeah. I had a question about the sort of the the prosecution of the Hundred Years' War kind of in totality. We see how these sort of familial reputation-based pressures kind of helped encourage the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War. And I sort of have this sense that by the end of the Hundred Years' War, it's become a bit of a quagmire. And that maybe if you were purely looking at it from, say, like a modern sort of geopolitical like strategic planning kind of perspective you'd say that this is like an afghanistan or something is that do you think that's unfair first of all to to see it that way so if i understand the question correctly you're, you're essentially saying that holding on to the conquered territories in france was to a certain degree beyond the capabilities of the english crown in the 15th century that it was a, it's an overreach it it feels a bit like that at least from a you know a, a layperson's reading that seems reasonable to me the english weren't able to read machiavelli uh in the early 1400s but if they yeah. had they would have benefited greatly from trying to win over the hearts and minds of the local population yeah <laughs> because they didn't do a very good job of that and mm -hmm. and as a result they were resented horribly Mm -hmm. uh, by their their French subjects. And had they gone out of their way to create a, uh, a more favorable impression of English rule, their mm -hmm. control over their territories may not have collapsed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, you know, it's, it's hard to know what ifs in history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, all we can say with some certainty is that Ultimately, this system of governance, the hereditary kingship, is uh, was 
and, and probably still is, a highly flawed system of governance mm-hmm. in the sense that if the king dies unexpectedly <laughs> and doesn't have a an heir that's capable of taking the throne in yeah. a... In, in a successful way and and that was the situation with henry the sixth the, the mm-hmm. piece that we're about to hear more about um there there was there was chaos the english members of the english nobility were fighting amongst themselves and and profiteering and and yeah. uh, so internal dissensions within england broke out because the king inherited the throne at age one right and it that one-year-olds just don't make good kings. And and yeah. even as it turns out, Henry VI never made a good king. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. By good king, we mean was able to establish order and, and peace in his yeah, own yeah. country. So ultimately, he was just... And, and this happens from time to time. A king would come to the throne who was woefully ill-equipped to rule. Yeah. And, and that was the case with Henry VI. Yeah. And... and as a result, uh, his own subjects took advantage of it, and ultimately his enemies, the French crown, took advantage yeah. of it. Yeah, and it, it almost seems like these old cultural values, in the Hundred Years' War, it seems like not only does it push the prosecution of a, a war that's hard to win, but it also seems to help destabilize the monarchy at critical moments. Yeah, the, the French during the Hundred Years' War and the first decades of the 1400s were experiencing their own, let's call it a feud, mm-hmm. uh, and and between the, the Armagnacs and uh, the the Burgundians, mm-hmm. the two. And, and there was this pattern of violence where they were assassinating the leaders of each side. And, and yeah, yeah. Um, ultimately, the Burgundians sided with the English for a while against the the French crown, the Mm -hmm. Armagnacs. And it wasn't until the Burgundians switched sides and started supporting the French crown again that the French started winning the wars. Infighting within the royal family was always a sign of of weakness. And, you know, again, going back to sort of the story of Cain and Abel, uh, this was something that that authors tried to discourage in the strongest possible terms, (laughs) that that infighting would lead to nothing good for the kingdom. On that note, let's let's turn to the waning years of the Hundred Years' War, when when Henry VI uh, witnessed the decline of English power on the French mainland and the beginning of the War of the Roses at home. And we have two more students to chime in on this, so take it away, guys. Um, I'm Brady. I'm James. So you both were studying Henry VI, and I guess first of all, um, for for either of you, what's our what's our historical context yet again, jumping forward in time? Yeah, uh, it's really interesting because Henry VI became the King of England when he was about nine months old, and then the King of France when he was about a year and a half old because Charles VI had just died. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the early part of his reign was actually dominated by his uncles like Humphrey um, and uh, Cardinal Beaufort, just because you know a nine-month-old is not very yeah. effective at running a kingdom, yeah. um, and so it really took him until his like later teenage years to start making decisions. Um, but at that point, it had become pretty apparent that he was pretty disenchanted with the whole politics scene, 
in England mm-hmm. at the time um, and was a very devout Christian mm-hmm. and cared a lot more about you know studying the Bible and studying faith than he was about running his kingdom. Yeah, I've read portrayals that are sort of like a portrayals of kind of a head in the clouds kind of person. Is yeah, that fair? Definitely. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, I think uh, one source I kind of touched on mm-hmm. was it was Shakespeare in his play, Henry VI, and yeah. he portrayed him as basically completely lost. In, in, so in these projects, what did you really want to know going uh, into it? Um, I wanted to, I just wanted to know why Richard of York, why did he want the throne? Why did he want um, do, to, to usurp Henry? And it was because Henry's, Henry's weaknesses. So did you, so I guess, did you take it as his motivation for usurping the throne being less, I want this, say, just to have more power or just to be rich, but more like, I can't abide this person being in charge anymore. Like, I have to put a stop to this. Yeah, that's how I took it, kind of. um, And it was also, like, an opening. Uh, I think it felt easy for him to to do it because Mm -hmm. of Henry's weaknesses. So I actually had a little bit of a different research question uh, when I was kind of looking into it. And, you know, looking into Henry VI initially, like, the first things you find, the first lots of things that you find are that he was... Uh, colloquially known as the worst king in the history of England. Hmm. Um, and I, I was really c- kind of confused on how that could really even happen because it's not that he was uh, being some sort of dictator and ruining the lives of his people. Right. Um, and, you know, learning more about him, you realize that he was this guy that had all sorts of problems between, you know, kind of acting like a child. Um, in noble settings as well as just not caring about uh, politics. And I was curious about how somebody with so many facilities and so many people around him at all times can just be so disenchanted by by what his job is supposed to be, yeah. by like birthright. Yeah. And I kind of found that, you know, a lot of the a lot of the things and a lot of the writings and um, stigmas around this guy really stemmed from the cultural influences and a lot of the biases that people had during the time, Mm -hmm. as well as a lot of the people writing the history came from the next king's people, right? Right, that's definitely going to color the picture a little Uh bit. So a lot of those people were saying, like, well, this war was easy. This guy was just an airhead. He didn't care about his kingdom and everything. When in reality, like, you know, a lot of the childish decisions that people portray him to be making, Mm -hmm. they've got the the descriptor down to a T because he was a child when he was making these decisions. Um, I mean, he was nine months old and by the time he was coronated, he was 12. Yeah. <laughs> and when you're coordinated as king, people have to listen to you. So I guess the criticism lands a little different when it actually is a child. Exactly. Yeah. And it, you know, in history, they kind of gloss over the fact they're like, well, yeah. he's already in the fifth year of his reign. Well, yeah, he's 17. And most of us <laughs> weren't even out of high school at that right. point. Do you think any amount of this perception could be, the natural way that this culture would vilify somebody after they've lost power. This, this general portrayal of, of, of weakness, of uh, kind of not standing up for himself. Like I think in your script I read mm-hmm. about a moment where there was someone who had insulted the crown in some way, who he pardoned. Yeah, that was um, a couple of types of people that he had pardoned. Um, mm-hmm. Some were criminals and some were people that had um, wronged the crown in the sense that they just didn't pay their taxes or didn't pay yeah. various yeah. fees. Um, and 
it, it was interesting because Henry actually was somebody that said, like, this guy deserves a second chance. He's somebody that we trust. Yeah. So he would do that Because I could, I could see that being spun just as easily as a positive of a, a forgiving, understanding monarch who's, say, not an authoritarian who would give someone a second chance or who would recognize their value despite some crime that they've committed. But, but on the other hand, I can see how in, in a medieval society you would... You would, it could, you would be really easy to spin that just as weakness and therefore moral failing, sort of just inherently because weakness is moral failing. Dr. Paradis, do you think that's fair that uh, we could just as easily spin a lot of the things about, a lot of the things we know about Henry VI as positive characteristics in a ruler? So, like, his leniency to a lot of us today, that would seem like elements that makes a good leader right i mean one of the points that <laughs> one of the students brought up in the uh his research was that henry the sixth recognized his own failings as a king and uh let his very capable wife margaret of anjou yeah uh rule the kingdom and mm -hmm. he didn't have a problem with that today right we'd that, say that's say a good. smart man right? that's a that's a guy yeah. that's willing to let go of his but yeah. but from the 15th century perspective yeah. Yeah. it was uh unthinkable right and, and it seems like it's sort of no matter how capable in politics um, margaret of anjou might have been she was playing um, against opponents with a loaded deck in a sense simply by being a woman in this context. Right. They, um, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier where you could generate a campaign of misinformation about someone, mm -hmm. they were more than happy to use the patriarchal and misogynistic elements of their culture to yeah. portray this French woman yeah. who was ruling over England and watching England lose all its territory to France. I mean, imagine that scenario. From, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, um, uh, but Margaret uh, was, as many women in these stories are, she was a tireless defender of her dynastic rights. And, and when she eventually had a child... Uh, she did everything she possibly could to... Yeah, that's something Christian brings up immediately is... is um, and he, he took the, the most, I guess, sort of pro-Margaret of Anjou perspective um, that uh, what other choice did she have? Because she's married to this guy and she has a son who's going to take the throne and, like, you know, you're all in at that point. So, so we heard from Brady and James, but before we move on from Henry VI's ill-fated reign and the outbreak of the War of the Roses, let's hear from Christian, this time thinking about things from Margaret of Anjou's perspective. So, I mean, you know, they were talking about, like, Henry bearing the weight. From my understanding, Margaret was the one that really got the bad rap. This is a time when the general public's not super quick to critique a monarch like that. I mean, you know all the brutal ways they kill people back then. They're not going to just go out and start, you know, chanting, we hate this guy. But a French queen that is coming in and exerting, you know, power over this, like, you know, monk-like king, it's like she's the one that kind of got targeted. She was, like, a main force against, like, the Yorkists, and uh, 
I have a whole section where I talk about like Yorkist propaganda um, and how they were super, you know, they, they exploited her effectively um, in spreading this like information. Uh, my paper is, is about explaining why she's represented this kind of controversial way um, in like Shakespeare and then you fast forward like 500 years later, Game of Thrones, you know, like Cersei Lannister is, is very, very loosely based on Margaret of Anjou. Mm -hmm. So it's like she's consistently being represented as, as this like villainous, mischievous queen. And, and it's only gotten worse. I mean, the Shakespeare play isn't as bad as like Cersei. But um, I, was, I was really interested why, you know, once you kind of examine and analyze her life, she was like put in a really bad situation from the get-go. I mean, she kind of was forced in this position of exerting power. Right, right. And then when she is exerting power, people are like, oh my God, it's a woman queen that's, you know, making all these decisions, whatnot. Let's turn back to Dr. Paratus, because I have a question. Um, how does the perceived weakness of Henry VI resentment towards Margaret of Anjou. How does this lead into the Wars of the Roses? Um, because this is sort of the, the fracturing, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so the Lancastrians, mm -hmm. or, you know, to the students of Game of Thrones, the Lannisters. The Lannisters. Yeah. <laughs> Which really, yeah. you know, they're, they're like, oh, and the Yorkists were the Starks. And it's like, yes, exactly. <laughs> so... The, the Lancastrians in many ways had been the war party for mm -hmm. the better part of a century. In other words, the Duke of Lancaster back in the 1370s was the pro-war Duke of England really? that yeah. wanted to continue the war against France and was stymied by his nephew, Richard II, and yeah. who was eventually killed by the Duke of Lancaster's son, mm -hmm. um, Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke. And and so they pursued the war under Henry V, and they were they were all about the war in France. And yeah. and then with the marriage of Henry VI to Margaret of Anjou, what we have is a turning point of trying to make peace with France and negotiate a settlement. Right. So you suddenly have a crown that is moving towards peace and settlement. It has a a king that appears weak, that appears too... Monkish. Too monkish, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you have a woman handling many of the affairs of state. That that seems like a perfect storm for, for a family who've been pushing the war the whole time to be embittered and feel aggrieved. And, and on the other side, you have the House of York, which has this long-standing claim to the English throne that's really a little better than the Lancastrian claim in mm -hmm. terms of the, the rights of inheritance. Yeah. And their their leader, Richard Duke of York, happened to be someone with a stellar military record. Uh -huh. So yeah. Yeah. that didn't hurt either. Yeah. Uh, he, he suffered a little bit from... Maybe he wasn't the most charismatic person. He was not particularly tall, and, and he stammered a little bit sometimes. Mm -hmm. It was a little uncomfortable, but uh, nevertheless, he was mostly well-regarded by many of the most powerful people in England. And, and, and so they had the momentum, and 
they, the Yorkists had tried previously to challenge the House of Lancaster for the throne, and it didn't work out well. Yeah. So they had sort of learned, uh, you know, maybe don't do this. But as you said, there's a perfect storm here of a very weak king and a, 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 his, his wife uh, ruling uh, in his stead. And the king not only was monkish, but he also suffered a, a catatonic year. Uh, really? Really? 1454 to 1455 or 1453 to four. I'm not sure exactly what the hmm. months involved there. Let's say around 1454. Yeah. And, and during that catatonic year, uh, Richard Duke of York was able to position himself as the leader of the Royal Council. Yeah. And yeah. Margaret of Anjou had to step into the background. And then she uh, gives birth mm-hmm. And that helps raise her stature. And Henry VI comes out of his catatonic stupor and uh, is able to uh, agree to his wife being head of the royal council. And the Duke of York is pushed off to the side right, that again. That public agreement shuts yeah. him away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that sets up the conflict. Now, we're going to take our final jump ahead in time, moving a few decades ahead hearing from our final three students with their takes on the mystery of the deposed King Edward V and his younger brother, Richard of Shrewsbury. And uh, Dr. Prattis, what is the bridge between uh, the outbreak of the Wars of the Roses and this final mystery that we're going to look at in terms of historical context? I I think the uh, most obvious bridge there is the character of, of Edward the Fourth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Edward the Fourth was the son of Richard, Duke of York, who I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Who's got all the these? Who's prosecuting the war in France? Who's frustrated with uh, Margaret with of Anjou? Margaret, Margaret of Anjou and yeah. with Henry the Sixth. Yeah, and and he's killed in a battle, mm-hmm. and his eighteen-year-old son is now or becomes uh, in fourteen sixty the sort of by default the leader of the, the Yorkist faction. Mm-hmm. And he acquits himself really capably in battle, uh, in, in a couple of different battles. And, and uh, as a result, uh, he rules England mm-hmm. pretty successfully, quite frankly, uh, and, and uh, for, for 10 years. And he uh, makes a major mistake in, the, uh, in his, his, his marriage alliance. His mm-hmm. marriage alliance is with this woman that he fell in love with, Elizabeth Woodville. And by making that marriage to this lower echelon family mm-hmm. that had been a Lancastrian supporter, uh, he alienated many of his powerful Yorkist supporters who were huh. busy negotiating. The Earl of Warwick was negotiating a marriage alliance with the French. and, and Yeah, yeah. The Earl of Warwick switched sides and went over to the Lancastrians in the late 1460s and 1470, invaded England and on the side of the Lancastrians. And he and Margaret of Anjou, who hated each other, yeah. were fighting on the same side. And, and uh, ultimately, Edward IV wins that and, and kind of snuffs out the, the, the last vestiges of the Lancastrian opposition at that point. And he continues to to rule pretty capably for another 12 years. And he was this larger than life, big guy, you know, 
Mr. Party, womanizer, uh, successful yeah. military commander, he invaded France with a very large army that Louis of France, Louis XI of France, couldn't deal with, and he paid him off. Louis paid Edward to to go away and continued to pay him for years and subsidized the English crown and <laughs> caught his own Danegeld. <laughs> I mean, exactly. And and it was so he was he was pretty successful, but he. You know, he partied too hard, apparently, because uh, he died at age 40. And um, he left the the crown uh, once again to uh, children uh, mm -hmm. and a child. And, and in this case, the child was not one year old. It was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it um, created a moment of transition yeah. that it was an opportunity for those who were power hungry to seize the throne mm -hmm. succession when succession is tenuous for any reason creates an opportunity for uh, manipulation scheming mm -hmm. potentially civil war etc and um, there was this rumor going around that actually his children were not legitimate that he uh -huh. was previously uh, engaged to, I believe uh, the woman's name was Butler. Uh, I can't remember her first name, but uh, uh, that, that this is called troth plight, where the the he had promised to marry someone else and yeah, then yeah. married, uh, and and possibly you know who knows exactly why he promised that. I would assume that in order to gain intimacy with that person and mm -hmm. and. In any case, he, he marries this this other woman, Elizabeth Woodville. Yeah, and yeah. their children are then accused later of being illegitimate because so they're he bastards. Was, basically, if that accusation is true. Yeah, yeah, and and the issue arose first from Edward the sibling George, and and ultimately Edward had him executed for, I mean, George had rebelled a couple times against Edward and Edward had not killed him. It really and, is and, very Game of Thrones also, just in terms of how many different people are fighting, rebelling, betraying, yeah. switching sides, start oh. making a new marriage, yeah. annulling an old marriage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then um, it, it resurfaces, after George is dead, it resurfaces when Richard planned, Richard... Um, uh, Duke of Gloucester becomes the regent in 1483. So there were these boys that were, you know, the, the Edward V was the, the heir apparent. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richard was appointed in the legal position of kind of guardian or regent. Yeah. And once he gained possession of the boys for their supposed safety uh, and, and safekeeping, he had them placed in the Tower of London, which, of course, we associate with maybe torture <laughs> devices and right, killing people. Right. But back then, it really wasn't so much that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and ultimately, uh, the boys do, they did die under Richard's watch. Richard wasn't in London when they died. Mm -hmm. He could have had someone else do it. Mm -hmm. We do have two students who think that that is what happened, so let's hear from one of them first. Uh, take it away, Taylor. 
Um, okay, so the historical context is their father, who was uh, King Edward IV, he had died in, I believe it was April of 1483, um, which led to the throne being open to be obtained by someone. Um, the two princes, one was, the eldest was 12 and the youngest was 9 at the time of their disappearance, uh, and they were in line for the throne. Um, however, there was a lot of power dynamics going on at this time. Um, this was the last, this was happened within the last few years of the War of Roses. Um, so there's just a lot of upheaval in regard to who was going to be the next king. Um, so they actually end up, the theory is that they got locked in the tower by their uncle, who is Richard III. Um, kind of with the motivation, or at least what I talked about, was the motivation that he wanted the throne instead of allowing it to go to his nephews. And they were, I mean, they were so young at the time that they really had no, at this point, they had no standing and, like, no following like Richard III did. So it was, what I talked about was it was pretty, it was a pretty simple plan to put together and pretty easy to follow through with because, again, they were 12 and 9. And Emmy, you also agree with this this take that it was Richard III, right? Uh, yeah, so I agree that it was most likely uh, Richard III who killed the boys, but um, there were like a bunch of reasons. There was a very corrupt political structure during that time. Um, they had actually five different crowned kings um, over that 25-year period five different people took the throne. Um, so it was a very tumultuous time with the struggle for power between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians kind of going back and forth. So when Richard III was appointed protector over um, Edward V and the kingdom while Edward V was still too young, he was actually successful in being able to claim the throne for himself and not have to step down as protector through like a bunch of malicious and manipulative actions. There is, however, another perspective, which is that a lot of Richard III's depiction is propaganda, that he's been maligned, and that he didn't have good reason to do it. So we do have one student that has a different take on this. I'm Mason, and I guess for me it sort of brings in the broader question of legitimacy because, I mean, of course Richard, by assuming he did murder the princes, he did gain a more clear path to the throne, but he sort of also put up a lot more risk in terms of his own legitimacy, which reflected in the Henry Tudor narrative and, you know, Shakespeare's Richard III play where, you know, he's portrayed as a hunchback, a child killer. Right. Um, so with that said, and not really to anger any apologists or anything, but for me it really comes down to, like, how much of a moron is Richard? But with all that given, Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, was in a position where it would benefit him much more to sort of put Richard's legitimacy into question yeah. and then potentially grab up some of the power for himself or help Henry Tudor. Okay, so that's interesting. There's actually this idea that Richard III's reputation is being tarnished by these boys dying under his watch, and so obviously then it doesn't benefit them to have them killed. Uh, Dr. Paradis, what is what's your feeling on that? I think it seems very likely that Richard's enemies had it done in yeah, order... Yeah, that, that was Mason's whole point, was um, how stupid would he have to be to kill the boys 
under his aegis, um, what would that do to his reputation? And it's, I think, at least worthy of note that the rumors of the boy's disappearance started to circulate in October of 1483, at precisely the time that the Duke of Buckingham, who was, in, in some people's opinion, anyway, the likely murderer, mm -hmm. uh, staged a rebellion against the, the protect. Well, Richard at that point had become king. He was no longer yeah. just the protector. Yeah. He had had himself crowned because his argument was, well, those boys are illegitimate due to the troth plight. Right. And so I should be king. I'm next yeah. in line of succession and uh, took advantage of that. And, and the Duke of Buckingham had very much ingratiated himself with Richard and, and gained all this support and and all these these titles from richard and and as richard went around the kingdom celebrating his you know he went on progress to sort of celebrate the fact that it let his subjects see that he's the king uh buckingham was back in london around the tower and other places and he had a a very good opportunity mm -hmm. uh to ensure that those boys uh died and that Richard was blamed for it. And, right, and yeah. And then shortly thereafter, he rose in rebellion. <laughs> immediately uses that. It's yeah. the, the slander theme again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And by the War of the Roses... So we're kind of getting to that end of the Middle Ages. We're nearing early modern. But do you see these themes that we've seen through, through the old Anglo-Saxon period and William's conquest, uh, the Norman conquest, and the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War and the end of the Hundred Years' War and the outbreak of the War of the Roses and then all of the drama that goes on. It's such a bewildering array of drama and familial conflict in the, the War of the Roses. Do you think the themes that we've been talking about that inform so much of this, are we free of them? Do you think we still deal with kind of the ghosts of old Germanic honor culture? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we mentioned Putin earlier mm -hmm. right and yeah. and you know you just think about the fact that wars often break out because rulers can't come to an agreement yeah oftentimes mm -hmm. over resources land oil whatever yeah and and those rulers use their vast influence to say it's to bring the rule of law to these people or to bring democracy mm -hmm. or whatever. But in many cases, it's to gain control of resources. Yeah, and yeah. in some cases, these rulers feel as though they have to pursue those rights, those, those, those resources, those territories or oil or whatever it is, in order to demonstrate their manliness or their their strength uh if it's a female ruler uh they still have to you know maybe even more so than men mm -hmm. have to demonstrate that they're strong right yeah, that they're a strong yeah. leader and that they aren't a neville chamberlain they don't just placate yeah. the madman yeah, uh, and, yeah and so on and so forth so uh it's a tricky situation to be sure but i do think that there's a an element of protecting one's reputation yeah. and uh, we saw this uh, in particular with the vietnam war the the presidents in the 1960s knew 
the Vietnam War was unwinnable, mm -hmm. but they didn't want to be the president to lose it. If right, they could kick right. that can down the road. <laughs> Pass it on, a hot potato. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so uh, there's pretty good evidence to indicate they knew that it was never going to be won, but yeah, they didn't yeah. want to be the president that lost the war. And, and so there's this reputation issue. And, and it's, it's, it was fascinating to me anyway that, that Biden was willing to uh, get out of Afghanistan. And it turned out to be a pretty ignominious ending to the U.S. occupation in Afghanistan. But, right. you know, in, in many ways, you just look at it and go, well, again, you know, how many lives were lost and how, much, mm -hmm. how many resources were put into that? And what was the whole point of that exactly anyway? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and someone was going to end up holding it. And I remember right. talking to someone back in, you know, shortly after 9-11, and we were arguing about the wisdom of going into Iraq and, and then Afghanistan. And he said to me, well, we had to get our pound of flesh. And I thought, my God, here we are again. <laughs> Vengeance, once again, yeah, uh, is yeah. the motivation for... And, and people seem to be okay with that, that there right. is a... a, a, a yes, we... You know, there, there's this 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 belief that our honor or our reputation or uh, our rights have been trampled on uh, mm -hmm. by this this these these people, and we have to seek vengeance. Mm -hmm. And and of course, we don't have to seek vengeance, but that's the way that it's often portrayed. Yeah, yeah. Fighting wars is is so twentieth century. You know, it's 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 <laughs> yeah. it's time to to start thinking about solving global problems. So um, otherwise, uh, um, our, our problems will be even bigger, I think. With that said, uh, thanks for taking the time. For the oh, interview. yeah. Appreciate it was it. really fun. And uh, <laughs> hope my chair didn't squeak too much. Oh, no worries. <laughs> and thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. Until next time. Hey everybody, if you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash sebastianweatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. Show notes are also available on my website where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.